Have you ever experienced something so crippling in your life that has made you feel broken? I have. Are you someone who has a giving heart but is struggling to feel good themselves? Are you consistently putting your needs aside to take care of everyone else? If so, you're not alone. Giving starts with giving to yourself so that you are able to give of yourself to other people. Isn't it time you took back control and discovered what makes you tick? Join me in my journey and find out how you can feel better about yourself, live your best life, and share that with others. Thinking of yourself, it doesn't make you selfish. It makes you brave. I'm Nelia, and this is the Giving Starts With You podcast. If you're looking for a way to start your self-care journey or looking for a unique gift to give to someone at Christmas, check out my new book, The Ultimate I Deserve a Break Coloring Book. It's filled with inspirational designs created by me um, all around giving and uh, living intentionally. So if you'd like to check that out, it's available on Amazon as well as my new website at www.neliahut.com. Dot com. That's www.neliahutt.com. Welcome to another episode of the Giving Starts With You podcast. I'm your host, Nelia Hutt. Thank you so much for joining us again today. Today, I am so, so excited to introduce you all to um, a remarkable human being who has made so much change in this world. His name is George Lombardi, and George is a former warden and former director of the Missouri Department of Corrections. Um, so George, George has dedicated his life, um, 41 years to be exact, um, in, in the justice system, and um, he's very big on restorative justice. Um, and you just have to hear him speak. Um, he's amazing. He has created a program called Puppies for Parole. And um, yeah, this is just an, an amazing example of what it means when you find something that you're passionate about, you stick with it, and the things that can happen in the world because of your idea. So without further ado, here's George Lombardi. Hi George, how are you? Good morning. How's your day going so far? Oh, it's it's still early, so <laughs> and it, it doesn't have the uh, power yet to do, go bad, so it's going good. Okay. Yeah. Well, why don't I go? Why don't I share my background with you a little bit? Okay. Well, let me tell you a little bit about me then. Okay. Um, uh, I um, served forty-one years with the Missouri Department of Corrections. And I started out working on a master's degree in psychology and did an internship at the Missouri State Penitentiary. That was 1972. Hey, that's when I was born. Okay, well, there you Another, see? <laughs> I was already getting busy. <laughs> so, yes. Anyway, um, and uh, ultimately I became a prison warden for seven years and then uh, director of all the 20 state prisons for 18 years. Mm. And then I retired in 2005, the first time. 
<laughs> and I did consultant work with the juvenile systems in Louisiana, um, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. And then uh, the new governor of the state of Missouri, uh, Jay Nixon, uh, called me and asked me to serve in his cabinet as director of corrections, which would include not only the prisons, but the 54 parole offices. I had 11,500 staff. Wow. Uh, 30,000 inmates, 40,000 people on probation and parole. So I did that with him for his two terms, eight years, and then I retired in 2017. And now I'm engaged and I'm on the board of directors of about four or five organizations, primarily uh, to help ex-offenders find work as they get out of prison. Along the way, along the way, when I was director of prisons uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, I was approached by a dog program in St. Louis called Champs Incorporated, who uh, trained service dogs, particularly for people in wheelchairs and uh, developmentally disabled, etc. And they said to me, look, you know, we would be much more efficient if you would allow the women at your prison in Vandalia, Missouri, to do part of the training. I had some misgivings, mm -hmm. so did the warden, but we talked about it for a long time. Uh, the organization came forward with how they would monitor and supervise. And after the warden spoke to all the staff, which, you know, a lot of the staff were like, some of them were like, you know, what are they going to do? Train the dogs to attack us? Uh, it's, it's a, you know, craziness, craziness. But we we worked through all that and started that program. And uh, it went great. It went great. And I, it, it you know, the, the idea of the women living with the dogs, living with the women 24-7, training them. And the training that they did with these dogs took up to a year. And uh, they did a beautiful job. And I saw the tremendous impact it had on the offenders as well as on the dogs, of course. Mm. And uh, it really transformed, transformed those inmates. Mm. Uh, it made them more compassionate, more altruistic. Uh, and, and those are the two qualities that a lot of times are missing in offenders either because they never had compassion to begin with or because, and this is truly a, uh, a, a, a strong story, is they lost it because of childhood trauma. Mm. Childhood trauma is a powerful catalyst for people ending up in prison mm. because that, that trauma affects them so much psychologically, emotionally, physically. And uh, so we saw the improvement it had in people. But not only that, part of the training involved the dogs going around the prison campus and interacting with other inmates. And so it had a positive effect on the culture of the prison in a positive way. And then I retired in 2005. 
So I had this in my mind. And when I came back in 2009 as director, I sat down with the 20 wardens and I said, look, the experience we had with the women at Vandalia was really positive. And this was during a time where Missouri was the uh, number one worst um, dog kennel abuse uh, state in the United States. We had terrible, terrible uh, situations with a lot of the poorly run dog kennels and, mm. and dogs suffering all over. And I knew that the shelters were being overrun with these poor dogs. And so I sat with the guys and gals and I said, look, I would like for you to consider, I didn't order them, I would like for you to consider taking on some of these dogs that are not adoptable, that they're having a hard time adopting and bringing them into the prison. And we'll get some volunteer trainers on the outside to come in to teach the inmates how to properly train dogs humanely and correctly. And um, the most senior warden I had at the Missouri State Penitentiary raised his hand and said, I want to do it. Mm. So when a guy like that steps up uh, and has respect from the rest of the warden population, it seemed okay. So in 2010, the first dogs came into the prison in Jefferson City, Missouri, uh, from the shelter in Jefferson City. And that began the program in February 2010. I will tell you now, you know, I've been retired almost five years, but the program has gone on. Mm. And I will tell you, they're approaching 7,000 dogs that have been trained and adopted out successfully uh, at all the prisons, came online within a, a year and a half, every single prison had a dog program. We had the largest dog program, and still do, uh, across the country. And lots of wonderful things happened. Um, to continue with this, um, there is an organization in Hillsborough, Missouri, called Comptree, which is a community mental health and health program. And that CEO and I were friends for years. And he said, I want to help. And so he and his vice president uh, got uh, money uh, to train some of the dogs who had um, potential mm. to be dogs to help people in need. So over time, we trained dogs for PTSD soldiers coming home. We put dogs in veterans homes, mental health facilities, nursing homes, trained dogs for developmentally disabled. And the one which really caught me that had a great impact was they trained dogs for children of autism. Mm. And the children of autism, the change in those children, and then concomitant train the change in the entire family in a positive way was so special and is so special, continue, continues today. So um, yeah, yeah. over time, that has had such a large impact. 
So a little side story beyond that. There's a there's a dog program in England, in London. Actually, it's all over England. Called um, oh gosh, what's the name of it? I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> I can't think of the name of it, but I'll let you know what it is. Uh, anyway, the CEO of that program in uh, England uh, did research on dog programs in the United States, zeroed in on Missouri, and came and spent a week with me and visited all the different dog programs that we had with the idea that they would go back and approach the prison system in England to um, to adopt dogs in the same way. Unfortunately, their wardens balked and they never did get it off the ground, unfortunately. But the CEO had the opportunity to share our dog program with the parliament. And the parliament was really taken with it. They really loved the idea, but it never got off the ground, sadly. But it was a proud moment for us to show another uh, great organization. And this organization has like 300 staff. They're the largest uh, dog program in Europe, and they do a great job. It's actually dogs and cats. Mm -hmm. So um, that, in a nutshell, is what Puppies for Parole is about. And of course, when I started it, I had three thoughts, three thoughts. One of them was, I know it would make a difference with the dogs. And believe me, the inmates took in dogs that had three legs, dogs that were blind, dogs that were deaf, and three or four dogs that were blind and deaf. And they trained them. They passed the uh, AKC good citizenship test and were adopted out to great families. And so um, I knew it would obviously save a lot of the dogs either from being uh, euthanized in dog in dog shelters that, that did that or living life out in a cage. And so we saved all those dogs from that because they took in the difficult dogs some of who have been in in a shelter for many, many months and were not adoptable. And um, the stories we have back from adopters are, you know, amazing. So that was the second thing. I knew that it would help adopters' families. The dogs would be a family member, and it did happen. But I also knew the impact it would have on the inmates. Because of my thoughts about compassion and altruism, I knew that it would transform inmates in that way, and it did. And the data we have over time shows that the inmates who partake, who did partake in that program, recidivate at a much lower rate than everybody else when they get out. Mm. I've got a lot of my little ex-offender friends who are actually have their own dog training business. Wow. On the uh, and I've got a friend, by the way, who's just about finished writing a book about Missouri puppies for puppies for parole, and uh, I'll share that with you when it happens. So uh, there's the story in a nutshell, uh, and all those things have happened and come to pass, 
and um, it's it's you know it's people tell me that it's my um, my legacy, and I'm proud of that. If it is, so be it. I mean, I I'm a strong believer in restorative justice. As a result of that, we started programs in every prison beyond puppies for parole to give inmates an opportunity to do things with their hands and make things to give to people in the community that were even worse off than they were. Mm. So we have um, we have uh, a huge garden program uh, that the inmates work the gardens and give the produce to um, uh, to programs all around Missouri to give to people, you know, that have need for produce. And one year we did over 200 tons of produce <laughs> uh, accordingly. We have people that make quilts, that uh, inmates that make quilts for uh, honor guard, you know, I mean, not honor guard, but honor flight where World War II veterans that are old and in wheelchairs they get a quilt to hold around them to fly to Washington to the World War II Veterans Memorial. Mm. That we had a maximum security prison that made booties <laughs> and little caps for <laughs> HIV kids in in um, hospitals. That's so and they made hundreds of hundreds of those, and these were our most maximum security many male inmates. So every I required every prison to have some kind of restorative justice program and in addition to the dog program. So uh, I, because of my belief that inculcating compassion in inmates is the most critical thing we can do to for their future as it is an anathema to criminal behavior when they get out. Mm. They really are compassionate for others. And uh, it really has. Yeah, the whole time you're talking, I've got goosebumps. Like I feel these chills, you know, because, wow, there's so many things that you said in there. Everybody wins, you know, and wow, like, so there's a lot of similarities between these inmates and these dogs, right? But both, they've both been through trauma. Yeah. You know, most of the dogs we took in had a trauma lifestyle, just like the inmates. And, and yet the good thing is that in prison, you know, it's taboo uh, to give uh, kindness and so forth to one another in a prison so much. The form of weakness, right? Right. When you, but you can give it to a dog and a dog gives it back to you 150%. And nobody blinks. So you are reinforced. You are reinforced for compassion. And to me, that is the quality. And I always say this. Compassion is the quality that makes us human and humane. I got to quote you on that, George. Do it. You're, you're amazing. There's just so many things, you know, they're both, when I think of the similarities between them, they're both just 
want to reignite their love you know they want to feel that human touch you know and sometimes we really do um put aside those inmates so quickly and we judge without knowing their story and without knowing where how they got there and without knowing how they're coming out you know we just we ignore them and and quite often judge and and you know if a dog's not perfect we do the same to the dog right. and right. i think it's so beautiful when you put two um two things that society thinks is broken exactly together exactly. Oh, and it creates, you know, a hope, right? Like, if you can't create hope for people that are coming out of prison, what can you give them? You know, honestly, you have to feel like there's a reason to get up, you know, a passion, the purpose, something happy, something joyful in their lives, that they're not only known for being in there, you right. know? Right. And I don't have anywhere near the experience that you have, but I could definitely make that connection so easily. Absolutely. You got it right. You got it right. You know, what's amazing, what's amazing is to watch the inmates as they change. Mm. And they learn not only compassion, but they learn patience. It takes a lot of patience. A lot of the dogs that we bring in from the shelters are scared of everything and everybody, and they have to be carried into the prison. Mm. And the inmates, somehow or another, over time, turn them into lovable pets. And, and I think, yeah, I think amazing. it's because maybe they see themselves in that animal. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, like, oh, it's yes. just. Yes, yeah. exactly. You know, and it's funny, I, you know, I've got a million stories. In fact, I have a PowerPoint that I, I've done. In fact, um, I was invited along with my, uh, the vice president of country that I mentioned before, my friend Judy, um, and I did a presentation in front of the Missouri Veterinary Medical Association in front of 400 veterinarians, all the vet school from the University of Missouri. And I had, I had veterans crying wow. over, the, over the stories, you know, the video that we had and all that. I mean, it's very powerful to see the change and uh, the change with the inmates and the dogs. And I tell a little story. One of the stories is about, uh, you know, the caseworkers in the prison decide who would be amenable to being a dog handler, right? Mm -hmm. They have to make the decision. And so there was this great big guy, six foot six, probably weighed 300 pounds. And they finally, after a while, they decided to give him a break and let him be a dog handler. He was so beside himself that he was going to get to do this. And of course, he's thinking, I'm going to get a Rottweiler or I'm going to get a, a pit bull and I can't wait and I can't handle it. But who did he get? He got Fifi the poodle that was about this big. And so, so he got Fifi. And you know what? It impacted him so bad that when it came time to give him up, and by the way, we have a ceremony at graduation for these dogs mm. where, the hand, where the adopters who are available will come and they'll exchange a leash with the handler and they'll give them, take their leash and put it on their new dog. Aww. And this guy was crying his eyes out. He couldn't do it. 
he was crying so bad. So his roommate had to had to make the change. And that's the kind of powerful change that happens. And so one of the things that comes up a lot is, boy, doesn't it hard for the dog for the inmates because they fall in love with these dogs? And yes, it is. But they know that going into the pro process. Mm. It is a growth experience for them as well. And if they do well enough, they get another dog. So it yeah. teaches them trust. Absolutely. It teaches the dogs trust. It teaches yeah. them how to get what they want and how to um, how to train the dog without violence, with kindness, and how they can get you know, the softer they are, maybe the more they receive. It teaches right. so many things. Right. This it's is a so very, very powerful thing. It has been for now since 2010, like I said, and it goes on, it goes on. And I don't know why it would change in the future. You know, directors like me come and go, uh, but uh, they have to see the benefit. Uh, I don't care who they are. And they do. Wow. And, and, you know, sometimes we, we, people just talk about numbers, you know, how many inmates are here and, and the numbers of dogs are doing this. But when you put people, you know, we got to take that out of the equation, because when you put people in a room together, and you have one human being, whether they're an inmate or they're not, and you put one human being, and then you put bring that one broken dog, and you connect them together, like, I would love to be in that room, you know, be a fly on the wall, and just see that like you could just without you know that invisible feeling that goes between the two of them oh, yeah. oh i would oh it's just like beautiful to me honestly it is, it is a it is it's a beautiful thing there's no question about it that's a good way good way to put it it's a very beautiful thing um the changes are amazing in both parties mm. here's one thing that happened that surprised me that was another positive aspect of the program I did not expect, as each program came online, that the staff would adopt the dogs. So many of the staff adopted the dogs. And you can see how the relationship between inmates and staff became positive as they watched their dog be trained by the inmates. And it was a new discussion that heretofore would never have happened. Instead of authority, authority is negative, right. you know? Right. And so that was a wonderful surprise. Mm. And we have wonderful stories of the staff, and they still have their dogs, and <laughs> the dogs are, you know, part of the family, and their kids love the dogs, and, and so forth and so on. And sometimes they bring the, their dog back to visit their trainer. I was going to ask you that, if yeah, they're able to yeah. do that. Yeah. 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 So, I'm sure they recognize each other right. instantly. Like just, right. how long are the training program? Like how long is are they with the dog? Uh, usually around eight weeks, but it depends. It depends on the dog and how it's going. Mm. And keep in mind that uh, when I started this, by the way, I said, we're going to do this with no tax dollars. We're not going to spend any tax dollars doing this because I cannot see myself going before the budget in the General Assembly and saying, I need money for inmates to have dogs. <laughs> no, 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 no. So like that's that. what we did. And we, we did it from um, contributions from the public, 
contributions from the inmates, contributions from staff, contributions, and let me tell you, of our wonderful, wonderful partner, the Royal Canaan Dog Food Company. Mm. You ever heard of Royal Canaan Dog Food? I have, yes. Royal Canaan Dog Food USA is housed in St. Charles, Missouri, you know, uh, about 100 miles from here. They have given all the dog food oh, wow. for all the dogs for all these years. That's a They're lot of dogs. Most wonderful, altruistic, wonderful family. And of course, they are owned by the Mars Corporation. Okay. The Mars Corporation is the largest, third largest family corporation in the world. It's out, and they're out of France, actually. And they have approved this. And I'm telling you, I love those people. They've been so great. So great. Can you imagine all the dog food for all the dogs? That's a lot yeah. of money. Yeah, that's right. a lot of profit. Right. Yeah. And you'll see more about that in the book when it's published. I would uh, love to read it's, that. Uh, and you'll see great stories, great stories. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I just... What do you say to people that have an idea, but they're afraid people are going to say no? Afraid what? Sometimes people have an idea and they believe in something so strongly, but they don't present it to people who can really support it because they think they're going to turn it down. Yeah. What do you say to people like that? Well, you know, <laughs> I guess I can't relate so much to that because I've stuck my nose out too many times. You know, but that's it. Be personal. Yeah. I guess it's one of the things that has gotten me where I am uh, is that um, I shoot my mouth off, and uh, it's always gotten me places. And you know, I just it's a risk you take, and I I lecture about that too. I say you got to take risks. Mm. You got to take risks in this life, and I knew it was a risk, but you know what? I had great support from my governor, mm. from the first lady, from everybody, from members of the General Assembly on both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats alike. They loved it. They loved it. And um, I, I, had, I had some state representatives that adopted dogs from the program. Beautiful. Yeah. So there was nobody that didn't like it. I mean, there were some staff that were opposed in the beginning. In fact, <laughs> we had a sergeant at one of our prisons who was vehemently opposed to it. And he mouthed about it all the time. Blah, 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 blah. Damned if he didn't end up adopting a dog. So he turned completely around. Oh, it so, could have um, been Fifi, too. You just never I mean, know. It could have been Fifi as well. It could have been Fifi. It could have been Fifi. Yeah, so it's like if you don't ask and you don't come and you don't fight for what you want, it just, there's no, it's no chance. You know, you, you just got to take some risks. And and, uh, and it's not just the inmates and the dogs, of course, that are benefiting. But like you said, the families that it goes to. You know, the relationships between other people, the, the relationships between the inmates and the, you know, authority there. And I don't know, I see people coming out stronger, more confident, more gentler, you know, perhaps having 
discovered how much they love animals and maybe wanting to work with animals, you know, because I don't know very much about prison, you know, but I'm just from an outsider, people leave and sometimes don't know, like, it's not just the barriers that society puts on them about work, but maybe they don't really know what they want to do. And they're just looking for anything, you know, and I think when somebody has a purpose or discovers something that they love to do, it really makes life more enjoyable too. leaving prison shouldn't just be about surviving, you know, you want to get to a place where you actually love what you're doing and you're giving back. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm. You know, um, if you want to do the podcast about the dogs, that's great. I'll be glad to do it. Sounds like we might have already done it. I've already done it. This is it. I don't know. Well, it's up to you. <laughs> it's up to you. If you want. Wow. Thank you so much, George. I really appreciate it. That's my pleasure. As you can tell, I love what I did. I love all my, I love the inmates. I love my staff. It was a huge organization. And uh, I still am in touch with a lot of retired staff. I probably have 150 ex-offenders on Facebook with me. It's beautiful. Uh, so I stay in touch with them and I, you know, I root for them. I want them to do good. Um, that's I'm great. engaged with another program called Laughing Bear Bakery. <laughs> What's and that? it's a bakery that the purpose of it was founded by uh, our former Buddhist chaplain. Okay. One of our prisons by the name of uh, Kaylin McAllister. And you can go to a website for Laughing Bear Bakery. And uh, the purpose is to hire only ex-offenders. Mm. So it's their first shot at getting a job, getting they out. They need that so much. Right. And I'm on, that, I'm on that board as well. And so I'm still rooting for offenders. Uh, you know, it's my psychology background. I got my master's degree in psychology. I've never lost the belief that people can change. Uh, that's my psychology background. And uh, I've watched so many do that. You know, one of the this, this is a little aside, unusual. Missouri has the death penalty. Are you aware of that? No, I'm in, I'm in Canada. Yeah. Missouri has the death penalty. Mm. And back in, the, in 1990, we decided to get rid of death row, you know, a separate housing unit, mm -hmm. and allow the inmates who had sense of death to live in the general population of a maximum security prison. They wouldn't leave max, but they got every privilege and every ability to be around, to meet with their families, to it's have a job humane. of anybody else. And it's been the healthiest thing. Mm. So one of the things I decided was to allow death row inmates to be dog handlers. Oh, that's so beautiful. That was a big, big issue. Wow. They, they have done great. Wow. They have done great. So. Just to treat them like humans, you know? Yep. It's just, we all bleed the same. Yep. You know, a, a lot of times on, on my show, I bring uh, guests on that have had trauma in childhood. And some of them have been to prison and some of them haven't. And, um, you know, you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation how it's so connected. You know, is there anything you want to add about that that I can 
you know, about how childhood trauma quite often will lead to breaking the law or lead to being in prison. Let me tell, can I tell you a story? Of course you can. Okay. So I told you that um, in 2005, when I retired, I spent three or four years doing uh, consultant work with juvenile systems in Louisiana, Washington, D.C., and San Francisco. In Washington, D.C., I flew out of St. Louis every other week Mm. for like two years uh, and worked at the uh, facility for committed youth in D.C. So I was with these young people. And uh, one of the things I did with another guy was take take these kids fishing on Chesapeake Bay. Okay, in uh, in Maryland, and uh, it was it was an epiphany moment for me. And here's why: these kids had done bad stuff. A lot of them had done assaultive stuff. You know, they were really tough. Um, my job was to put worms on hooks, and I'm putting worms on the hooks, and their eyes as big as saucers, <laughs> and they shook. Their hands shook like this. And it was an epiphany moment for me. It stuck, it struck me in my heart that these kids had their childhood stolen from them. Their mother was a prostitute on the street. Their father was in prison. Big mama or auntie trying to take care of them. The only people they had to look up to was the drug dealer on the corner. And so who, why would we think that anything could happen other than the fact that they would end up in the criminal justice system. So I thought about this a lot and I went home and this has become my second passion. I realized that early childhood education can have a tremendous impact on kids like this with childhood trauma, with poor upbringing, et cetera, et cetera. So I became a passionate spokesperson for that here in Missouri. And um, in fact, I addressed the uh, National Early Childhood Education uh, Conference a few years ago and spoke to that entire hundreds of of, uh, instructors and principals of these kinds of schools. Because I believe, you know, while we talk about early childhood education, a lot of the the emphasis is on what? Let's get them academically ready so that they can compete when they get to first grade. But my concern, once again, is compassion. Mm. I want instructors to know and have knowledge and have education on how to teach these young children to be compassionate to others. Yes, thank you. And that's the interdiction that can happen even though they had trauma or difficulty upbringing that, you know, they observed domestic violence in the home, mm-hmm. whatever it might be that, that, uh, that's difficult for them. So that is my lecture I had to the uh, early childhood people. And like I said, you need, to, you need to have the knowledge, first of all, to observe the children. And when you see behavior that seems to indicate childhood trauma, what do you do? Where do you refer? How do you help? Exactly. I said, you should be also tuned in with 
organizations like Big Brothers and Big Sisters, which I'm strongly supportive of that as well. And uh, so anyway, so that's kind of my second passion. I love that so much. And when you talk when when you talk about these kids learning compassion, it's for others, but also to learn to love themselves too. Oh yes, because when you have that trauma, yes, because when you have that trauma, um, you believe all the crappy things yes. people say about you. You're bad. You're you're horrible. Yes. You're yes. stupid. You're dumb. You know, without self esteem, go yes. together. Thank you, because it's so important. You know, I see that over and over too in my interviews. Um, where people, you know, don't seem to get the help they need until they're adults. And sometimes that's just way too late. Yeah. Well, just think about the inmates who are dog handlers. Mm. What do they learn? They learn self-esteem because of their success. You know, the great pride they take in yeah. being able to take a dog that had to be carried in to the prison and so scared mm. into a lovable, obedient dog for a family. Great especially in prison because they can reconnect with who they are because like you said if you show these things to other prisoners it's weak you be preyed on you it's 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 frightening people only show the toughness right because survival um so when when those barriers can break down and it's perhaps, you know, through the animals and them. Oh, I can't believe all the things that they must feel. Like this renewed sense of, you know, there's hope. There's there's life after this. There's, you know, um, I can be a good person. All these things that maybe they didn't believe in. I think it's such a beautiful project, honestly. Incredible. So proud of you, George. And I just met you. And I'm just like, this is amazing. You're incredible. Thank you. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. One thing I, I didn't mention specifically, but I want you to know that um, the dog program has had a positive effect on prison culture. Mm. The more calmness with the dogs present. And it really has. And I'm proud to say that during my 18 years as director of all the prisons and my eight years as director of corrections, we have never had a serious disturbance at any prison. Wow. And is that since the dogs or in general? Both. That's amazing. Both. Yeah. Because we always believed in restorative justice and that affected the, the tenor of the facilities as well. Hmm. Before, before, before the dogs, we had restorative justice programs in every prison right okay that's amazing yeah i want to see how you know i'm trying to raise awareness for these for these different programs it would be great okay. i think people need to know more about them honestly i loved our conversation thank you so much for thank you, thank you for asking me. oh my god yeah and i'm we sorry gotta P, we got to do a ppa someday yes yes you know thank you george for your time and have a great day, okay? You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe or leave a review. See you next week on the Giving Starts With You podcast.